This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the movie Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart in Peril. Kind of sounds like you picked out a YouTube video rather than a movie, but rather than look it up, this week we're going to watch the 1956 movie Forbidden Planet with good friend and author Amber Elby. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace and I'm your first co-host. And I'm actually your executive producer, Adam Gobeski, uh, substituting for your other normal co-host, Jessica Claris, who could not be with us today. Oh, thank you very much for, for coming, Adam. You're not going to call yourself the uh, third co-host or perhaps second co-host of the day? or uh, Nope, executive producer, I think, trumps all of that. So we're going <laughs> to we're gonna stay the course. That is true. You control the purse strings. That's true. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the all the money that you get <laughs> it all denied flows through you <laughs> yeah that's right yes which means i can uh i can make objections about you not respecting this 1972 japanese samurai classic <laughs> you know when i looked it up on imdb it kind of looked like oh this is probably a good movie that i've never heard of although there were how many other movies were there there were uh six there were several other movies that were titled lone wolf and cub colon baby cart something <laughs> like the yeah. subtitle was even used multiple times well i think that's a uh, english affectation i don't think that actually happens in the original japanese but that's not what we're talking about today today instead you decided that we're going to talk about the 1956 film forbidden planet that's right and our guest today is author and good friend amber elby and she has just published a book cauldron's bubble which comes out on september 14th correct so it should be out by the time this podcast uh, welcome to the show amber hi guys thanks for having me and yes my book is going well it's currently available on amazon even though it's not officially released yet uh so you can find it by searching for my name which is just a-m-b-e-r-e-l-b-y and it's also my website so put a dot com after it and you can find me there too so just a brief synopsis Forbidden Planet is a science fiction movie from 1956 that is loosely based on the William Shakespeare play The Tempest. It is about a ship that goes searching after uh, another ill-fated expedition. And this new expedition is led by Commander Adams, played by Leslie Nielsen. And they land and discover two survivors and a robot who uh, may be hiding some secrets from the rescue party. So, Amber, why did you decide to watch Forbidden Planet for our podcast today? Well, my new novel, Cauldron's Bubble, which I'm going to try to say as much as I can, uh, is actually... Is is that a a tongue twister? Uh, I don't know. You guys should use it for warm-up from now on. Cauldron's Bubble, Cauldron's Bubble, Cauldron's Bubble, Cauldron's Bubble. No, it's okay. All right. Sorry. Carry on. Good. So, it's actually Shakespearean fan fiction. And I kind of got this idea to create a Shakespeare verse where his different characters interact with each other. After seeing a play called Return to the Forbidden Planet, I saw it when I was 11 at Western Michigan University. And it's Return to the Forbidden Planet is based more on The Tempest and a lot of Shakespeare's other plays. It's almost entirely written in Shakespearean quotes that are really famous ones. So if you can name uh, or like recite a Shakespearean quote off the top of your head, it's probably in this play. And it's obviously based on Forbidden Planet, too. And I had never seen Forbidden Planet. uh, And I had asked you guys if you had heard of Return to the Forbidden Planet. And you hadn't because you're normal. And I've found that most people have not heard of the play. So uh, this is how we got to the situation where we are right now. 
So the author of Return to the Forbidden Planet was disappointed because Forbidden Planet was not enough like The Tempest? And uh, yes, it's a lot more explicit in the play. Like there's the character of Cookie who's in both uh, Forbidden Planet and Return to the Forbidden Planet. But in the play version, he's very obviously supposed to be Caliban. Uh, There's a lot more of a similarity between those two characters. And I feel like, yeah. I feel like this is an improvement over the original too, but the play is also a musical. And so it has music from the time of the original film, all 1950s stuff kind of interspersed with, uh, with this Shakespearean dialogue that's said in between (laughs) the songs. So this is probably why you guys haven't seen it. Um, As I say, this play sounds like it takes all the things I like about this movie and just throws them aside and does something else. <laughs> I I've imagine it was intended for high school performances. It was originally okay. performed in London, but the, the videos I've seen of it on YouTube are all high school productions. And so I'm sure that they work it into their curriculum somehow okay. uh, with like show choir doing the popular songs and then Shakespeare Club spitting out the lines. <laughs> well, if the show has taught me anything, it's to reserve judgment on things that I haven't seen. So for all I, I mean, what did you think about it? Did you were you a fan of that play? Uh, I I mean, I was 11. I loved it at the time. Uh, but watch rewatching it, I, I did have to question some of my adolescent taste. Now, are you sure that's not just because of the production you were watching? I, I was going off of the script. So as long as the, the YouTube video I was watching used the original script, that's what I was basing it on. I can forgive <laughs> bad or, you know, unprofessional performances. So I guess given all that, what did you think this movie was going to be like going into it before you'd actually seen it? Well, I knew that Forbidden Planet was really influential and I've I studied it in college. Everyone who I knew had talked about it at some point or another. And I knew that we wouldn't really have Star Trek if it wasn't for Forbidden Planet and we wouldn't necessarily have Twilight Zone in the way that it exists without Forbidden Planet. And I kind of just overlooked it because I saw all of these things that it inspired. And I also had this gut feeling that I wasn't the audience for it. Like I wasn't the audience that the filmmakers in 1956 had in mind. And I was basing that off of the poster. Uh, And the poster that was in my brain was the one that's on Wikipedia with this robot carrying this very voluptuous looking passed out girl. And that just, it, it didn't look like it was up my alley. There was a different poster on Amazon that interestingly has the robot carrying a passed out guy. And then the girl's actually awake and alive in that poster. So that one did look a little bit more appealing. I think that might actually be the DVD cover. Oh, there you go. The second poster is a scene that actually happened in the movie, whereas the first poster didn't actually happen. And is a bit (laughs) more menacing. Like Robbie the robot is is not the type to abduct a lady, as far as I can tell. And I did know Robbie the robot, too. Just like how people have never seen Star Wars still know R2 and 3PO. Like he's such a huge part of our culture that I was aware of him existing (laughs) and knew his name. Okay. I like how they had to formalize him as Robert at one point. (laughs) Did they? Yeah, um, I I think it was Cookie called him Robert, and I thought that was so funny. But Robbie appears, and he looks very similar to a lot of the robots in Hollywood that we see subsequently. When this movie came out, wasn't he a fairly original-looking creation? Yes, he was. I don't think it's uh, an exaggeration to say that this movie is, in fact, a seminal film, and it's very, very influential on one of the 
influences is the design of Robbie the robot. And he's listed as a character as a actor in the credits. He's not listed as a character. He's also starring Robbie the robot. Right. So sucks to be the person in the gun in the suit. <laughs> no credit for you. <laughs> When I was watching it on Amazon, it has the trivia that kind of comes up on the side. And it looks like there were two actors playing Robbie. So I was wondering, is there one guy in the suit and one guy being the voice? I don't think they could have crammed two guys in there. That would not have been comfortable. Or they kind of tag team who was playing him. That's like, what I, I would have guess. these questions. Yeah, I would guess that they probably got hot in there. So you did a couple takes and then you you switched off. It's been known to happen for things like that. But Robbie was even reused. I think I was reading yes. maybe for like a Twilight Zone episode or maybe other movies even. So yeah. he's, in a, he's in a movie called The Invisible Boy, which is included on the uh, the DVD release of Forbidden Planet. That's why I know that. And that had the same screenwriter as this one. It was Cyril Hume. So Robbie is introduced as uh, the servant of Dr. Morbius. So he's the first person they uh, are introduced to when they step on the planet and they get a couple of questions in and Robbie answers them in a fairly entertaining way. You are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Nice climate you have here. High oxygen content. I rarely use it myself, sir. It promotes rust. Hey, Doc, is it a a male or female? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Will you get in, gentlemen? I I like how he says that uh, the question of whether or not he's a male or a female is without meaning, and then he still identifies them as men. Like, if he doesn't understand the the idea of gender, he identifies them. Gentlemen and sirs, yeah. I didn't I didn't think he didn't understand the idea of gender. I think he just said that Morbius hadn't fitted him with gender specific traits. That was uh, what I took from that. That makes Not sense. that he didn't know what gender was, just that Morbius hadn't turned him into any sort of sex doll. <laughs> because that's what would happen if you were alone with a robot on a forbidden planet for twenty years. Well, maybe. I feel like Black Mirror kind of went there. He does have the machine where he can make anything appear in front of him that he wants to watch. <laughs> yeah, and so he chooses to control his daughter. Mm, yeah. So I, the thing I liked about that scene that we just played was that they're they're trying to converse with Robbie and basically getting nowhere. And they had the bit they had the bit in there too uh, about how he speaks so many languages because uh, when they first meet him, they're surprised uh, he speaks their form of colloquial English. And that's actually from Shakespeare when uh, the characters who are the the shipmen in the Tempest, when they first land on Prospero's Island, there's a conversation about like, wow, we all speak the same language. So that's where that came from. Oh, cool. Yeah. So there's a lot of things like that that I'm not necessarily going to pick up, but at least from reading your book and just reading synopsis of the Tempest, there's at least some character parallels here, right? Yeah, like Robbie is supposed to be Ariel. And in the actual play, Ariel's a harpy. So it is this kind of magical being. And I guess if you're going to make it sci-fi, then a robot is the logical, magical being that would take that place. Yeah, there's also the aspect of that since this civilization that existed on this planet is so far advanced from humanity that all of this essentially could be magic. There's no good explanation for 
exactly how any of this came to be. Well, it's I found it really interesting because in The Tempest, when when people think about it now, they often associate Shakespeare with the character of Prospero, who Dr. Morbius is based on. And in the sense of The Tempest, there's this idea that words create these magical lands. And even though Dr. Morbius is a doctor in uh, Forbidden Planet, he's not a medical doctor, he's a philologist. So he studies these words and his understanding of words are what give him the power to create Robbie and to kind of utilize the planet's earlier technology. So it's all still world building based on the use of words. I liked how they had to bring in Freud here, too, because Freud's always in the Shakespeare discussions. Like if you think of the Laurence Olivier Hamlet, they always have these Freudian discussions with that. And you would expect to see the same kind of discussions with Dr. Morbius and his daughter, Alta. But we actually see it with discussions of the id and how that controls the magic in the movie. So it was kind of an interesting twist on how I expected Freud to be in here. But do you know when Freud started getting brought into this stuff? Because I guess my sense is that this is actually probably fairly early. And by I mean early in terms of like uh, pop culture sort of terms of this application of Freud into like other mediums beyond just like the psychoanalytical. Well, Freud showed up in literary theory kind of the whole time because he analyzed like Jane Eyre. He analyzed Hamlet. And so some of his theories are, they work really well with literary theory and not so much with psychology, depending on what you're talking about. But it was also maybe early enough in it's at least movie pop culture presence that they had to explain what it was they were talking about. Like id, what's Yeah, they id? did. Right. <laughs> and it, they explained it in a way where like humans had forgotten about it and it was kind of rediscovered in the Forbidden Planet. And I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. So Morbius has discovered all of this technology and by making himself smarter using the same machine he uses to uh, project whatever images he wants, he's somehow separated himself from his id and created this monster that's wreaking havoc. So it turns out by the end of the film that all of the chaos that's been created was him all along? It's like in Sphere by Michael Crichton. And (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, fuck. Well, the, I mean, the movie exists as Sharon Stone in it, right? And it's not good. But <laughs> I feel like Michael Crichton saw this and was like, wow, the last 40 minutes would make an awesome book. Because the first hour of the movie was very slow. It was the part that was the most uh, the most like The Tempest. And so once they kind of moved into original territory with this idea of the subconscious materializing the secret fears of the individual then it got really good it would have made a good twilight zone episode it it was so closely linked to sphere that i feel like that must have been on michael Crichton's mind when he wrote that but speaking of the first hour of the movie it is it is a lot of establishment and it's a lot of building this world but it's also the whole time i feel like there's an impending sense of doom or something's about to happen. Everything that anyone does the entire time, I think is sinister in some way. And I think the reason has to do with the soundtrack. Huh, interesting. I did not, uh, I have to say, I did not have that sinister feel that you. Oh, had. really? So the entire thing was completely electronic, and I think it was the first movie to actually have a completely electronic soundtrack. 
it's the first commercial movie, at least, to have a completely electronic. I mean, there'd, pro- there'd been, like, uh, short films and independent stuff and whatnot, but this was the first, like, film designed for commercial release to have an electronic score, which is why, if you notice, in the credits, it's not electronic music. It's electronic tonalities is the uh, credit given to Louis and B.B. Barron, the composers of the, the sounds. That was something I really liked about the movie. Felt very oppressive to me most of the time, or at least mysterious. So whenever anybody was doing anything or saying anything, I thought there was some ulterior motive behind what they were doing, especially a lot of the crew members. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I I, I definitely get the mysterious thing, like you were saying, but I wasn't, I, I never really got a sense of like oppressive from the music. Like Morbius the entire time, you know, he's hiding something. So when it actually turned out that Yes, he was hiding all this technology, but then he was willing to explain it. That kind of surprised me. I thought there was <laughs> there was something greater that he knew, at least, that he was hiding from everyone. Some gigantic secret that was going to kill them all. And I guess that's true. But other crew members, like, who was the one that was hitting on Altera to start off? It was Farman. Farman, yeah. There's a scene where he takes Alta, is Morbius's daughter, and he takes her aside to talk with her and does some sort of creepy flirting. I've got that clip too. Oh, good. Yeah. (laughs) I hate this one. But you keep helping me. After all, you're not Robbie. (laughs) I wouldn't mind being Robbie in certain ways. Uh, That's only in certain ways, of course. I can see that was probably very clever, but I don't seem to understand it. I like that clip because of the the burn she gets in on him there. (laughs) I don't think she meant it on purpose. (laughs) But that scene right there, because of the soundtrack that's happening before and after that, I had the sense there was going to be this whole plot where he was going to be fighting the commander. Like there was going to be some scene where one of them had to die and they were going to fight each other for her. And that didn't end up happening. Like, did anyone else get that impression or that feeling that there was going to be more to that? No. Well, I (laughs) mean, you know, he's he's the captain. He's going to get her. That's just how these things work. But did you think that Later, Farman was going to be like, ah, oh, well, good job. You got her. That was how that ended. Yeah. Well, and then Farman died. Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess they had to uh, reconcile their differences before he died. So maybe that was the purpose of that. But I just read a lot into that scene, and I guess I shouldn't have. Well, I think that the creepiness, a lot of it isn't just from the soundtrack. And if if you could see this scene, it, it would help you understand what I'm talking about, radio audience. But his eyes don't always stay where they're supposed to when he's talking to Alta. And this, I kept on seeing this a lot, uh, where it's just these looks that the crewmen give her and uh, where, where their gaze actually falls. And I kept on thinking about the word gaze, too, because of all the power that it implies. And it made my skin crawl so much that I didn't even need a soundtrack for this scene and then the later one too, when he like convinces her that kissing is somehow healthy for you and <laughs> takes advantage of her isolation and inexperience to do an old fashioned movie makeout scene. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. it's played to be creepy, but it really is. I mean, we found this in a couple of the other movies that we've watched. I, I guess sometimes the farther back you go, the more of these scenes come off less as cute and more as kind of stalkery or creepy. And I'm sure that the people in the 50s who were watching this were like, that's perfectly okay. Yeah. And yeah, right. saw nothing wrong with it. It's just our modern sensibilities. Like, I wouldn't show this to my children kind of thing. 
uh, that we've advanced as a culture kind of past that. I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Alta is frequently dressed in miniskirts, which in 1956 is actually a really big deal, right? Miniskirts we sort of associate with the 60s. So for a character to be wearing this in 56, while not excusing it, you can perhaps understand the reactions of 1950s era males in viewing this. She has Robbie make a dress for her that's going to be more concealing. And then it might be concealing, but it's still skin tight and perhaps somewhat see-through. So um, <laughs> it it was like aware that the filmmakers were almost aware they were going to get criticized for her short skirts. And so they, they threw that in there. Was the purpose of the short skirts just because, hey, we want to get men to come in and watch this and talk about it? Was there a reason from the screenplay standpoint to have that, just that the men would be falling over themselves and this is the way to relay that to the audience? I would think it's probably more that one. Okay. And plus, I think it's a sense of like innocence, right? Like this is sort of the version of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden before the apple, not knowing that they're naked. There's there's sort of an innocence associated with nudity, you know, revealingness of a non-sexual nature, which I think is sort of what they're trying to tap in a little bit there is that uh, she hasn't known anyone else besides her father. So for her, it's not a big deal. And it's only when you bring in all the white males that it suddenly turns into a thing. And they do go out of their way to show her interacting with the animals and she can even tame the tiger. Then after she makes out, the tiger's no longer tame. It has to be vaporized, which was the, yes. the tragic turning point. It's very, very subtle. <laughs> <laughs> And then they remind you later on in the film, too, what had happened in case you weren't paying attention when the tiger was vaporized. <laughs> but I feel like I have to at some point acknowledge her name. Uh, it's Altera, which is the name of the planet. But they call her almost exclusively Alta. And that's really close to my character's name in my novel. And I'd never seen this. And so I just want to put this out there that I did not copy this in any way my character's name is from the first two letters of my oldest daughter's name and the last two letters of my youngest daughter's name so it is just this strange kind of psychic connectedness coincidence that was going on i wasn't ripping anything off synchronicity yes <laughs> thank you that was very linguistic of you <laughs> I, was just, I was just thinking of the police <laughs> <laughs> synchronicity too <laughs> well the album's called synchronicity <laughs> And then you have to look up, all right, what is synchronicity? And then they tell you about the difference between synchronicity and serendipity. And we're getting sidetracked. But, <laughs> but it's interesting. Um, so I think Charlie and I are probably bad people in that we're not really super familiar with The Tempest. But everything I've seen says that this is uh, either loosely adapted or influenced or somehow similar to the tempest so for those of us who don't know like what did you notice in the movie that sort of seemed very tempest-y well first of all you guys probably don't know the tempest that much because it's really not shakespeare's finest work it's really? uh, I, yeah i had read that it was considered to be actually one of his finest plays it's, it's really thrown together i'm not a shakespeare scholar i should probably say this i'm a huge shakespeare fan and so i look at it from a writer's standpoint because i'm i'm trained in screenwriting and the characters and their motivations in The Tempest just don't make any sense. It has this weird subplot going on with Caliban and some of uh, some of the abandoned crew from the ship that sinks in the first scene. Uh, and it's like this kind of comedic thing that's going on. Uh, there's also discussion of rape in the play, but it's supposed to be a comedy. 
so it's it's really weird. Like I can't necessarily nail down a, a good solid interpretation of it, which is why I could run away with it in my novel and <laughs> kind of fill in the blanks. It was a good blank slate for me. But uh, generally, the the plot of the Tempest is described as uh, there are these guys on a ship. And they have a shipwreck and they end up on this magical island with this guy named Prospero and uh, his daughter, Miranda, who is uh, the inspiration for Alta. And then there's also this magical harpy uh, mythical figure that's Ariel. And he can control this kind of magic that it's pretty unclear from the play exactly how the magic works. But in the film, they converted the magic to molecules. Everything was described in terms of how molecules interacted. And I really liked that because I felt like 1950s audiences would be like, I've heard of molecules, but I don't understand them. So this must be correct. Uh, <laughs> and this this doesn't start out with a shipwreck uh, in uh, Forbidden Planet. They have a little bit leading up to the spaceship safely landing. And then it kind of they get stranded. In the play, Prospero is responsible for the shipwreck, so he causes them to be crashed. There are some differences like that, where here Morbius warns them to stay away, and uh, they don't listen to him. But the strange kind of relationship with Morbius and Alta is really the same as with Prospero and Miranda. Uh, there, There's even a line in The Tempest that, that's almost exactly the same as Morbius's line where he says something about how, well, I guess I'll have to send her to Earth someday so she can kind of grow up and mate with someone. And that was a really bad paraphrase. That was the implication. <laughs> and so that that's from The Tempest also. Uh, the part where it branches from the plot of The Tempest is about at the 60 minute mark when there's a monster that starts killing people. And there isn't death or monsterness in The Tempest. Um, so that was, that was so what about, what about Caliban? I thought Caliban was supposed to be like a monstrous character in the Tempest. Do I have, am I off base on that? Or he's, he's really ugly and he's deformed and hunchbacked. And I tend to imagine him as like this Richard the third type looking guy. He doesn't really do anything that's bad. He's in the subplot in the play where he wants to be a slave and it's really bizarre. Like he lives in a cave that's potentially magical but it isn't really discussed. His mother's a witch, but she doesn't appear in the play. She's like long gone before the play starts. So there's not really too much to do with him uh, in the Forbidden Planet unless they made him the monster. And they didn't. They made him into a kind of bumbling drunk, uh, which was kind of an interesting turn. And then his subplot just kind of fizzled out. Like he kind of disappeared from the action, which was also bizarre. He didn't die. Did I miss him dying? No, he no, didn't die. So. Are, wait, are you are you saying that the ship's cook is meant to be Caliban? He is, according to Return to the Forbidden Planet. Uh, according to the play that's the musical, he is very obviously Caliban. And it does have that alliteration going, I suppose, where if there is a character in Forbidden Planet who's supposed to be Caliban, it's got to be Cookie. I guess I thought from my admittedly limited knowledge that uh, the monster itself was supposed to be Caliban, which I thought was kind of interesting taking basically Prospero and Caliban and putting them together and saying essentially these are two sides of the same coin. And even in you, the loving father, there still exists a mindless primitive, more enraged and more inflamed with each new frustration. So now you're whistling up your monster again to punish her for her disloyalty and disobedience. And if you don't do something about it soon, Morbius, it's going to be coming right through that door. I do like that. 
I suppose the monster could also be Sycorax, who's Caliban's witch mother, who does have this kind of evil quality to her, as described by Prospero in the play. But uh, in interestingly, in Return to the Forbidden Planet, uh, they have the Sycorax character married to the Prospero character. And they're like divorced, I guess. It's weird because it's in space, but they hate each other and uh, they, they're fighting all the time. So it's an interesting take on that situation. Yeah, it could have been a lot of just a combination of those two sections. Yeah, those two things being Caliban. Like I read in the Wikipedia about the Tempest too, there was some subplot with Caliban enjoying drinking with a couple of other characters. So maybe they just took that uh, that comedic relief and decided to keep keep that in there as well, where the uh, the cook decides he wants to replicate <laughs> however many gallons yeah. of uh, 60. bourbon, <laughs> 60 gallons of bourbon. I, I guess my impression was that um, the cook was there to be the comic relief in a movie that's actually very serious. Oh, yeah. Him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, deliberately. So I think uh, but we can get back to that. But he's there a to be the comic relief and then b to establish a motive for Robbie when the uh, the id monster attacks the first time. And the id monster and its first appearance was so late in this film. I mean, I wanted people to die from the get-go. I think that I have that expectation from, like, Doctor <laughs> Who. We need, a, we need a higher body count. And the first person didn't die until an hour in, and it's an hour and 40-minute film. And then it happened off-screen, and I w- and it described him as, like, being exploded over the all over the inside of the ship. And I was kind of like, I want to see that. But <laughs> is, this, uh, is, is this still Hayes Code time? When's the Hayes Code sort of peter uh, out? It had been petering out by this point, but it wasn't. The last nail wasn't in the coffin until, like, mid or late 60s, I think. Oh, okay. okay, it's still around. So, there, it, so that, so that it could, could explain potentially us. Be that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we didn't see the first on-screen death for another 10 minutes or so. Um, and then it all happened really fast with the awesome special effects that I'm sure one of you guys will want to talk about. And uh, it, it was pretty dramatic when the people actually started dying. Yeah, the effects in this movie were were great. I think the production value was my favorite thing about everything. You know, just the... The sets that they had done and that a lot of the backgrounds were hand painted and for a movie that's as old as it is, I mean, you would expect to go back and watch it and see some of the seams and they're there if you look, but still, it I think it looks amazing. Yeah. And doing a little bit of uh, background reading and stuff. So A, there really hadn't been any sort of science, like serious high budget science fiction movie for a really a long time possibly ever like maybe not ever but like since like metropolis in like 1928 or whatever that was yeah i kept on thinking of metropolis too yeah like but in between like then and 1956 like there had been plenty of like b movie uh science fiction films some of them you know sort of aspire to be more things like destination moon and rocket ship xm right that try to be a little bit more realistic with this stuff but a lot of it all is just like the monster movies of just like oh giant ants attacking or or monsters coming out of the black lagoon or stuff like that so this movie is consciously an a picture and has like all the the force of mgm behind it this is the same sort of people who are off making like singing in the rain and stuff right like the the a-list movies the budget was like 1.3 million dollars which was a lot 
Wow, right? that is and, high. And this is like one of the first color films and it's in widescreen, which was a big deal. And so you can tell that like they wanted this to succeed and they spent a lot of money. In fact, um, there was a, a documentary I watched accompanying this, um, which said that they had actually ended up overspending because they had built like half the sets and then ran out of the money. At which point MGM basically had to give them the rest of the money because the <laughs> sets were already half built. The sets are incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I, they just, they have so many details. I was, during one of the first scenes where it shows uh, Dr. Morbius's house, there are all these interesting plants that I was looking at them and thinking that took someone hours to build that little tree that's just kind of off to the side of the screen and isn't even important. And then inside it had all of this wonderful modernist plant design where there are these gold flowers that look like crinoid fossils. Like the design that went into all of those details was pretty mind blowing. Or even the inside of the inside of the spaceship. I mean, I it a lot of times you watch science fiction, older science fiction films, and you can say, oh, I know what they pieced that together from. Like, I know all the separate components. <laughs> like, that's the outside of a tin can, and that's a slinky, etc. But that's, here that's it was... part of an oscillator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but here, everything in the spaceship seemed to have a purpose, too. Like, they had thought about why that particular thing was supposed to be there. And they really utilized all of the set too. There's these kind of painfully long scenes at the beginning showing them using all of this equipment. And then again, uh, in Morbius's kind of lair where it has all of the alien technology, like they actually go through and explain what all of the stuff is and it takes away from the pacing of it. But I understand that it was really impressive when people went to the theater and saw this for the first time. Right. And I think they that the pacing is actually the way it is, partly because people didn't have a vocabulary for the sorts of things they were seeing. And so that's why the film felt it necessary to walk the audience through what they were seeing to make sure that they understood what was going on in a way that we don't need to do nowadays because we've had things like Forbidden Planet and all its subsequent uh, influences, Star Trek and Star Wars and all this stuff. And it's such a spectacle-based film. There's so many visual elements to it, from, like you were saying, with the, the matte-painted backgrounds and the costumes, which the miniskirt costumes are pretty incredible. <laughs> they make a yeah. point of saying that one of them is made out of diamonds, and it does have little jewels encrusted all over it. And the design of, of the crewmen's uniforms, it, I, nev I never saw anything like it in earlier films, and certainly have seen many examples that are similar in later films. So this was obviously the prototype. Oh, and then just the visuals inside uh, the planet of the Krell city, where he Morbius describes it as going like 7,800 stories up and just as far down. And it just looks amazing. These tiny, tiny little figures walking along this catwalk while there's just lights pulsing. And just it just looks like powerful things happening. It's just really impressive to see. It was also really smart to have that scene be the one where all of the, the talking was happening, right? Yeah. All of the explanation about the alien civilization so i was like all right well we've got something to amazing to look at while we're taking in all of this information and if you had done that in just a static scene it, it would have been it would have gotten boring very quickly but it was all necessary to build on what happens later yeah. it was and yeah you couldn't have had the monster from the id without having that exposition setting it up right and that that too actually wasn't bad that was probably all hand animated i don't know how else they would have done that 
that was incredibly impressive because like Mary Poppins did that in 63, I think. And that was still pretty technologically advanced to have the live action interacting with the hand-drawn animation and the style of it in Forbidden Planet is totally different, but it's, it's, I was watching it and I was, I kind of realized at that point that all of the blasters and everything, how much had gone into those scenes that we take for granted now. Uh, But then it would have been just completely new. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is that at the time, MGM had all these resources where they, you know, had these giant sets that they could build and this big stage they could film on and the matte paintings they could do. And there's probably some, I wouldn't be surprised if there's glass shots for some of the stuff as well. But what they didn't have was an animation department. And so they actually got uh, one of Disney's like top animators to do this for them. Like they brought him in. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. So much of the, the production style is very Disney-like, too. And I had to look up. Disneyland opened a year before this film came out. And there's so much in the original Disneyland Tomorrowland design that looks so similar in style to this. You can kind of tell that they were probably playing off of each other stylistically for all of these kind of spaceship, rockety future designs. Now that we're talking about that, too, there's one particular part that bothered me a little bit about the movie plot wise and character motivation wise and now seems to be explained which is that there's two of those crew members who go up to attack the id creature (laughs) the first one goes up and gets slaughtered and then the second one promptly goes up and then also gets slaughtered i'm like why did the second guy go up after he saw the first guy get killed it's like well because it looks cool right that's basically (laughs) it well, it's the screenwriting rule of three, too, where back then they were much more into these kind of rules that now screenwriters bend. But uh, when something happens three times, the third time it's different. So we saw the monster kill two people. What's going to happen when he goes after the main group of people, which is his third, essentially, potential time for uh, killing someone? Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I think that we haven't talked about that we really should is uh, Leslie Nielsen. Oh, Yeah. Given that this is probably one of the two movies that people know, the other being the Poseidon Adventure, in which he's actually playing a straight character, uh, which is to say non-comedic, in a non-comedic film. I kept waiting and waiting. It's like, when is Leslie Nielsen going to be in the movie for like the first 20 minutes? And I was like, oh, that must be him. I just didn't notice. You know, of course, before he went completely completely white haired and less wrinkles in his face and his voice. I, I don't know if it was just the the way the mics picked up his voice here or whether his voice got deeper as he aged, but his voice was a little bit different too. So it took me a while to pick up on it. I was a little bit confused about what to expect for tone also, because I knew that Robbie the robot was this kind of sympathetic, nice character before I saw the movie. I knew he wasn't evil. And then with Leslie Nielsen being in it, I thought, well, is this going to be funny? Because Return to the Forbidden Planet is funny. I assume it intends to be funny also. So I was expecting like more opportunity for gags, and they never were, at least not with the main plot of the film. His success or his ability to do movies like this is why his comedic turns work so well. Is because he can play them so straight. Like you believe him. I mean, he's just such a good actor in this. And it was interesting too how so many of the other crewmen were pretty interchangeable. Yeah. Uh, You couldn't necessarily (laughs) tell which one was which, but he always stood out partially because he was the best at acting uh, and partially because he has such a distinct look. I'm sure that's why they were cast because they look different than him. (laughs) Yeah. I spent a lot of time trying to remember the difference between 
Doc and uh, Farman, and then just decided I didn't really care. <laughs> it, this film looks so different in terms of casting from obviously modern science fiction films. Oh, wow. uh, it's it, there's uh, no representation of any kind. It was 22 minutes before a woman even appeared, and it's so dated. That I think that when we look at it, I at least had to keep on reminding myself, like, this is an important piece of history, not this is a really good piece of entertainment that I'm enjoying. I had to look at it almost like it was in a museum. So, right. I mean, I if it's based on The Tempest, how could there be more women in the cast? I guess you could have pigeonholed them somehow if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, the, the women inclusion is difficult. But in The Tempest, they are of uh, Italian and African descent. Sure. So there, I mean, potentially uh, they could have had people who look different, but Shakespeare often wrote his characters for specific actors. So he was really concerned with, Hey, who's free on this day and can play a guy with a beard um, who can play a woman, <laughs> something like that. So he, he would, he was very limited on his casting much more so than 20th century Hollywood was. Well, maybe <laughs> not now that I say that out loud. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it is just a cult, a fact of the time that, you know, the 50s weren't very diverse, particularly yep. on screen. So, and with science I mean, to, fiction, too. Yeah, to the point where I, I had two thoughts because I also noticed just like, oh, just pure white guys on this thing. To the point where I was like, hey, are there any blonde people even? <laughs> it looks like there may be one or two blonde haired people but it looks like everyone else basically has brown not even like black but just like brown hair just all more or less like styled the same way that's sort of just like oh like it's almost like cookie cutter for just the future (laughs) and then the other thing i noted was like um in many ways this feels like an influence on star trek and that star trek also wants to treat its theme seriously with a circular bridge that they and all they can run they travel from ship to ship but it sort of seemed almost like uh, having the diverse cast that Star Trek had was like a reaction to this and saying, no, it's not just going to be brown haired white men in the future. We will have African-Americans and people of Asian descent and blonde people. <laughs> and I was I was thinking about that as I, as I was watching this, too, because the first little bit of trivia that popped up on the Amazon screening of this was that this was Gene Roddenberry's inspiration. And I definitely appreciated the inclusion that he had in Star Trek even more after seeing this, because yeah. if this was his inspiration, then he reacted to it in a much more uh, advanced way culturally. Yeah. So certainly the. Uh... The sexism and the the assumption of just white superiority, right? Like just just yeah. never yeah. hasn't even occurred to anyone that right. Like white privilege at this point isn't something spoken of in the the larger culture. There, so, there, so obviously that sort of dates it. I think there was a line in it though where Captain Adams said something about how his crew represented the ideal of the species. And I wonder if maybe that's why there weren't blonde guys, if they were trying to separate themselves from Nazis. Oh, that's an interesting thought, actually. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, yeah, I like it. it. Especially thinking of Metropolis. Whenever I watch Metropolis, I'm like, well, this is where the Nazis came from. And that's, uh, you know, a different time period. But it also utilized this kind of ideal species that did look very Aryan. At the same time, you could have just, is that explanation really necessary? Do you need to explain that you've got highly desirable traits in all of your crew members? Couldn't you just say, yeah, we're people 
out searching the galaxy. Like that's an easy way to get out of that situation altogether. They they did have this kind of strange one-upsmanship going in Forbidden Planet where they had the discussion of their IQs and it was very <laughs> much like, I'm a better man than you. And this is why I can work the alien equipment and you can't. And I thought that was a strange kind of competition to throw in there. And I assumed it was a cultural thing that I just don't understand from the 1950s and that people then would have been like, I totally relate to these characters for feeling that way. And now we just don't value intelligence at all. (laughs) Now we don't go around spouting our IQs. Maybe you guys do. I don't. And going Going back to the crew, it was the stereotypes of the the crew were very uh, different than what we have today. Also, where the big concerns of the men who were in the spaceship for over a year, they said that several times, uh, they kind of come out of the spaceship and they're interested in women and booze and pool halls. (laughs) I was like, what a terrible kind of stereotype for these men. Uh, But then, you know, it's the 50s. So I'm sure that uh, some of the stereotypes are more apt then than they are now yeah it's the 50s and based uh loosely on a sort of military structure so True. right that's sort of the yeah the stereotype for like sailors and stuff too and that's that's the id coming out right <laughs> yeah so that's the part of humanity we're not able to shed yeah i think the moral for this was maybe that everyone has an uncontrollable id they just express it in different ways well yeah just some people haven't had their brain pans expanded such <laughs> that it allows them to subconsciously unleash it so you're taking the literal interpretation of the movie (laughs) don't get too smart interpretations (laughs) that was such a great concept though the idea of materializing the subconscious that's not in anything earlier than this is it i couldn't think of anything where it existed before well that's kind of what i was trying to get at with the like discussion of like freud showing up in pop culture right it's like yeah i also couldn't think of any similar sort of treatment i mean maybe in like the sf literature but certainly not on in movies or television what little television there was at this point radio and i i mean i think that there's probably a lot of stuff that deals with the creation of worlds outside of your mind where is it a hallucination or is it a real world but i can't think of an example of any kind of physical being that kills other things coming out of someone's brain. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde, maybe sort of a bit ish. Yeah, yeah that wasn't, yeah. I mean, Jekyll, like both of them existed. That was actually based on a real thing. Supposedly in Edinburgh, there, supposedly there was like an instance of that kind of split personality happening, but there was both like, you could go and touch both of them and you couldn't, I got the impression you couldn't really touch this monster. Like it interacted with things that when it chose to, but it could also change forms enough to sneak around. The way that the monster operated was kind of confusing, but I guess because it could change its molecules, it wasn't forced to be in the same form the entire time. I don't know. I guess one thing I'll say was that I did get the impression for a while that maybe we were supposed to suspect that Alta was somehow responsible for the monster. Oh, like, because got that she, yeah, feeling. but it the monster existed before she existed back at the original landing of the the spaceship, unless somehow well, it was unleashed differently. Few, yeah, like it could have been like something passed down from her mother, right? Oh. Yeah. Well, they described it as a force. And so I was thinking at first that the the planet itself was somehow alive. 
and that it had these kind of magical powers in not necessarily the soil, but in the forces of the planet where like instead of gravity, there was some kind of monster or death force that would kill people. So that's where I was thinking that was going to go. And then once it it actually started attacking people, then it was just a matter of, okay, who's controlling this? So what I had thought had happened, this is is an interesting conversation, is that the aliens had somehow sublimated themselves from their bodies and still existed and were killing people. When he had that whole conversation about them being able to do things without instrumentation, I was like, oh, there's still spirits around murdering everyone. <laughs> that didn't pan out. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> but you guys could totally write Forbidden Planet fan fiction and use that. <laughs> Alternative yes, endings. Yes, we could. <laughs> there's lots of other fan fiction we prefer to write, such as elf fan fiction. <laughs> Thundercats. Thundercats fan fiction. <laughs> Thundercats Wayne's uh, meetings. <laughs> Crossover. It sounds episode. like this. <laughs> yeah. This lone wolf and cub sounds like it could use some fan fiction treatment as well. Uh, yeah, I guess. Well, Lone Wolf and Cub is a highly influential uh, manga series in Japan. Oh, really? So, in a certain uh, aspect, it's a comic book movie. Yeah. Oh. The scripts are actually written, at least the first four or five of the, the scripts of the movies are written by Katsuo Koike, who wrote the manga. That's awesome. I like it when they actually use writers to write the screenplays, like the writers of the source material. Yeah, but we're that, getting sidetracked. Yeah. So after seeing this movie, would you recommend that anyone else see it? And if so, who? I think, <laughs> I think it's great for film well, students. I, I want to nominate my brother <laughs> and my aunt. It's like the, it's like the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have two little girls. They're they're six and nine, and they don't even like the original 1977 Star Wars because it feels really dated to them. They very much prefer the J.J. Abrams uh, Force Awakens. So I would, yeah, I would. Episode nine. I yeah, they were convinced it was already at the theater and were angry that I hadn't taken them to see it yet because they had seen the stuff at Target. And I was like, we will take you when it comes out. But uh, for younger generations, I don't think this would be entertaining. Uh, Not like it would have been for people in 1956. So I think it's great for film students. It came up for me when I was in grad school for film. Uh, That's how I kind of became aware of its importance. And I think that allowed me to maybe appreciate it. And as I said, in the kind of museum quality way, uh, it's definitely not as entertaining as a lot of the sci-fi we put out now. But Today's sci-fi wouldn't exist without it. So we do have to appreciate it. We do have to respect it, if you will. (laughs) See, that's interesting because I think the first time I saw this, I was probably like maybe 10 or 11 uh, watching it on a Selectivision CED player, which was the, the, the records that had movies on them. And I when I first saw it, I was actually quite captivated by it. But you hadn't seen The Force Awakens. Yeah, I don't actually like The Force Awakens that much. You're not the intended audience, though. Just like <laughs> I'm not the intended audience for Forbidden Planet. Neither are you guys, technically. But you're closer to the intended audience than I am. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't made for women. That's what I'm trying to say. No, no, uh, I get that. I, okay. Just, just trying to know how explicit I had to be. No, no, no. I was just trying to parse an argument that says that you should only watch things designed for your specific target audience. 
No, you just enjoy it more when you are the the intended audience. It's not that you would hate it if you're not. You're just going to perhaps enjoy it less on the scale of enjoyment. I see. So you can watch Crummy Force Awakens instead. <laughs> if you're a nine-year-old girl, yes, then it's perfect. All right. So, Amber, thank you so much for being on the show. You've watched something that we've recommended. So now you have the chance to recommend something to the world you think they should watch. So I actually have a list of probably 20 things, but you all told me I can choose three. So uh, in keeping... <laughs> It'll in, keep the editing keeping, down on my side, yes. <laughs> maybe you can put a full list on the website. Sure, but, uh, can. Okay, cool. My preference for science fiction isn't necessarily space travel. I do appreciate it, but I, I tend to prefer things more that use technology. So Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is probably my sci-fi recommendation. Uh, it deals a lot with memory loss, which is one of the themes in my novel as well. So it is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. In terms of Shakespeare spinoffs or fan fiction, I think my favorite is Scotland P.A., which is an uh, independent film. I think it was at Sundance. It has Christopher Walken in it. And it's Macbeth, but about uh, fast food restaurant owners. So it's a dark comedy. Um, <laughs> and then for added fun, I actually have a crossover of the two, like crossover science fiction with Shakespeare, which is a short film called George Lucas in Love. I think it's about eight or 10 minutes long. And it's a parody of Shakespeare in Love. And it's about George Lucas and how he wrote Star Wars. It's very funny. Has Have you watched that movie recently? Not George Lucas, but Shakespeare in Love. Does that hold up at all? Because I think it won Best Picture. And I remember having no desire to go back and watch it again. I actually did just watch it this summer. And I've probably seen it half a dozen or so times before then, just because it tends to come up a lot uh, when you're a teacher like I am. And it's rated R, uh, so it's not for kids, even though it would be great for teaching in high school in a lot of ways. Uh, it it did win Best Picture, I believe. It won Best Actress for Gwyneth Paltrow, um, written by Tom Stoppard, who is a, a pretty famous playwright. Mm -hmm. He wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. But I... Uh, I don't actually like Shakespeare in Love that much. It has a lot of cringeworthy moments where it's kind of forced as Ben Affleck in it. And uh, I read someplace, and I don't know how true this is, but I had read that Kate Winslet was supposed to star in it in the Gwyneth Paltrow row, uh, role. And I feel like that would have been a lot better film. I, I think she turned it down to be in Quills instead. But I, I want to see the Kate Winslet starring in the Gwyneth Paltrow role for this film. Yeah, but surely it holds up better than the English patient. <laughs> well, that's the wrong Fines brother, right? That's that has Voldemort <laughs> in it. Shakespeare in Love has Joseph Fines from Flash Forward, which was wildly successful. Ah, uh, I see. I would just be interested to know if uh, George Lucas in Love could possibly hold up if the original source material doesn't hold up. <laughs> I've actually I show it in one of my classes that I teach. I teach at college and. If you've seen Star Wars, it's still hilarious. Okay. If you have if you have not seen Star Wars or Shakespeare in Love, it makes no sense. <laughs> Adam, do you have a recommendation? So I have two recommendations. The first, if we're going to stay in the sort of seminal uh, science fiction realm, uh, I would recommend the 1951 version of The Day the Earth Stood Still as another of the classic science fiction movies that uh, was highly influential. And then uh, if you want something a little more, a little more modern, it's something very 
directly influenced by Forbidden Planet, uh, I will recommend the 1975 Doctor Who serial Planet of Evil, starring Tom Baker and Elizabeth Slayton. Uh, I believe the DVD is out of print in America, unfortunately, but it is on BritBox, so you can watch it there. Uh, So I was trying to think of movies that... Is this where you recommend The Naked Gun? (laughs) I should. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of uh, uh, thinky sort of space movies and one I'd watched a while ago. Cerebral is the term. (laughs) I prefer thinky. Thinky. There's a uh, 1972 Russian film by Andrei Tarkovsky called Solaris. It's uh, the original that the 2002 George Clooney one is based off of. And um, this the sort of production design, sort of cerebral aspects of it kind of reminded me of this movie. So uh, I'd recommend you check it out. It's a bit longer, but it's it's well worth the time. So... Our guest was Amber Elby. The book is Cauldron's Bubble, which you should be able to get on Amazon right now. Amber, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, you guys. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Sounds good. And uh, hopefully you'll get Jessica back in the near future instead of having you listen to me prattle on. <laughs> we, can, we can have Amber do the rest of her recommendations and just fade out on them. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a while before you're able to fade out. (laughs) The next thing I wanted to recommend was Bill Shakespeare, which is a comedy. (laughs) Or Hamlet 2. But seriously, I've spent way too long thinking about these things today. wraps it up thanks so much for joining us we had a great time hope you really enjoyed it and don't forget to check us out on facebook and instagram to hear us discuss more movies and television shows that you really should have already been watching i don't think i have any japanese cinema in the list i should put some in it's very amero-centric We've commented on this many times. <laughs> Did you even have any British films? I don't remember seeing uh, any. Barely. Yeah, I think some very, very popular ones, very notable ones. But Monty Python, for instance. Yeah, exactly. You should Might still watch it. Horrible Histories. That's not a movie. It's one BAFTAs. That, so what? Everything wins BAFTAs. All you gotta <laughs> do is be alive. Well, you have to also be British. That's I'm sure well, yeah, that's, that's part that's of it. it. But, oh, You're so... Taking that as assumed.